Do you think they can take a laser and remove your attitude today? I'm going to take a Finnair bus to Lausanne <laughs> to get them to laser your attitude out. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> I'm Rob. And I'm Artie. And welcome to Trades Planning, a podcast that tries to make sense of international trade, business, and expat life without putting you to sleep. On episode 47, we will talk about the worsening economic situation. IMF says it's bad. It says it's good. It says it's bad. It says it's good. Now it says it's bad again. It's like a relationship. It is a little bit. On and off. We'll also talk about China as the lender you now need to have at the table. Of last resort. Sorry, IMF. And we'll, of course, have Artie's biweekly story on Apple leaving China. Spoiler alert, it's going to India. Hashtag I was right, in case you were wondering. <laughs> yeah, that's actually the hashtag for basically the whole podcast. And later we'll talk with Kent Wilska about what it means to run a sustainable trade department in Finland, adapting to coming EU regulations, and learning to appreciate tap water. And we'll throw in a few points on listener feedback and sneak in a news roundup, and of course, a few jokes. The key thing, though, is I was right. Hashtag, Hardy was right. Welcome to episode 47, everybody. The atomic number of silver. It's a transition metal, which I'm pretty sure everybody's familiar with. It's used in everything from jewelry and tableware. It's also one of the three or four things in addition to crypto and gold that you will find in Fox News commercials to senior citizens which usually air after their nap around three o'clock in the afternoon. I've fallen and I can't get up. Don't ask me why I know that. Silver is also the color of my hair now that I've turned 55. My hair too, now that I'm turning 35. And I can join the American Association of Retired People. And also break your hip at the same time. And eat a buffet at 4 p.m. And buy silver before the coming economic collapse. What else do we know about the number 47? They're going to need silver for the apocalypse in the last five years of their life. Yeah, that's why I got rid of my 401k and started to collect silver. Liquidate everything. Everything. And put it in crypto. 47 is also the percentage of Americans that Mitt Romney claimed did not pay taxes way back in 2012. Actually, the script calls him Mitt Romney. What's the French translation? I hear Japan also has 47 prefectures. It does, Rob. has 47, 46 if you don't count the radioactive one. Former Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort also received a 47-month prison sentence for tax and bank fraud. He's also in the Guinness Book of World Records for what perhaps could be described as the worst toupee ever conceived. Or the best. It's all relative, depending on yeah, who you ask. Depends on what you're going for. The Price is Right, or at least the U.S. version, is in its 47th season. I've never watched it. I always wanted to make that $1 bet. The clever bet. I just know Price is Right because Bob Barker was in a Happy Gilmore. The Geneva Convention, protecting prisoners of war, was also signed by 47 nations. I'm not trying to make a joke. It's actually the truth. It was signed right here in Geneva. That's not funny. The Geneva Convention is not funny. No. You know what's funny? The world's first inflatable wedding chapel is 47 feet high. 47. Hey, Artie, I've got a wedding this week and I don't know where to hold it. They're not sponsoring us. We said we're holding that advertisement. <laughs> I want to know who the inflatable guys Until are. the cash is in the bank account, we don't go with that. Okay. That advertisement. That's, we're holding it back. But for the 30th anniversary party, could I rent the inflatable wedding chapel? You could if they pay us. Can you put it anywhere? Anyway, do you watch Succession? Because it's back, Rob. Is that the Murdoch thing? Yeah. The one with the guy? With the Scottish guy. Yeah. He played Agamemnon in Troy. That really crappy movie. I think he's better known for Succession, actually. <laughs> he is. I don't know why I know that, actually. It doesn't seem like a very nice family drama. Moving on. I should mention to everybody who's listening right now that uh, you can and should subscribe to the podcast. And better yet, you can also share it with a friend or people sitting next to you, as Michelle does. And where can you find the podcast? You can find it anywhere you get your podcasts, on any podcast like app Apple Podcasts? We're literally everywhere. 
What about Google Podcasts? We're like a venereal disease. We are everywhere. Penicillin is not going to help you. <laughs> anyway, subscribe to all of them and leave us a review. Be kind. Moving on. What have you heard, Rob? I did have a little bit of feedback on the broadcast. An avid listener who's also a member of my nuclear family said that we made the everything everywhere all the time joke too many times in the 46th Oscar themed episode because we thought the joke everything everywhere all the time was really, really funny. But apparently we said everything everywhere all the time too many times. So we will not be repeating everything everywhere all the time anymore because of that feedback in every segment. I'm going to have to listen to the episode to find out how many times we said it. Was it a good episode? It was pretty good if you listen to it. You're just yeah. a talent. You just show up. No, I'm always during the actual recording of it, and it's pretty much a mess. And yeah. then when Valentina and Michelle get done with it, then it sounds like a podcast. You know, the guy really who plays Logan Roy doesn't see his own movies when he, on, on like the premieres. He never watches himself. So you're like that Is guy. Is that from The Whale? No, from Succession. Oh, okay. We're just talking about Succession. You said you saw it. I don't know. I only know the that guy one. who beat up Brad Pitt. Who oh, the guy from Agamemnon. Yeah, that guy that from guy. Troy. Oh, God, I love his work. Orlando Bloom. Is Troy the one where he eats the people? No. In the pie? No, Troy. Oh. He's the people. Is that the one with the horse? That is. <laughs> and DiCaprio? Where's the Brad Pitt? When he fights the lion with the sword, that thing? Are you just an amalgamation of little factoids? Ones that are together. <laughs> so when it goes to search for that title, that's what you get. The guy who ate the guys inside the pie. So then, let's just jump right into the important news stories on this episode. First up, we've got more warnings about the global economic outlook, which seem to just sort of pile in by the day. Bottom line up front, it's not looking good. Let me just say it right there. Inflation, debt burdens in developing countries, and nearshoring seem to be blamed for a lot of it. The situation is quite fragile, as the IMF put in their paper. Friendshoring also seems to be blamed a lot. And global economic chiefs seem to be split over using the word resilience. Yeah, I mean, we've been talking about these elements that are leading to potentially the global recession for a while, but we haven't gotten there yet. So I think we're aware of what some of these elements have been. Inflation, the energy crisis, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, economic delinking and so on. So all of these potentially affect growth. So they create downward pressure on growth. My favorite kind. But I think what was interesting is two points you mentioned. One is that they now see friendshoring as a systemic risk. So we're creating economic inefficiency by doing things that are politically motivated or that don't have anything to do with efficiencies. We're taking efficient economic relationships and replacing them with less efficient ones. So at least in the view of the IMF, it's systemic. The other one was this word resilience, which I guess you can talk about, but it seems to be that the rich countries are using resilience to mean we're not going to help you. You're going to have to get resilient and figure out how to deal with your debt burden and these other issues all by yourself. And I think that's what it came to symbolize. And of course, developing countries have kind of seized on that and said, this is not about resilience. This is about kind of sharing the burden. Yeah, I think it's all relative. There are different priorities. I mean, we're talking about growth, not meeting a 2% benchmark in Europe or wherever in the US. And these countries are worried about making sure they have enough resources to pay for public services, which are really kind of different priorities, mm. different issues to deal with, the different magnitudes. We've talked about resilience a lot, and it seems to be that it's become kind of a bad word to use. Well, it's a placeholder for rich world countries to tell developing countries, well, there's nothing we can do about it because have you seen what's going on in the world? Mm. So it's not a good response to what are really dire issues in many of these countries. I think it's 40 or 50 countries alone which have these debt issues or will have debt issues. So that does lead us to the next bit we wanted to talk about, which is that China is starting to look more and more like a new version of the IMF. 
But despite the fact that it's lent out so much in funds to these developing countries who are finding it tougher to deal with countries like the EU and the West, the traditional sort of lenders of last resort, China is still finding it harder to leverage its soft power, in this case of the Belt and Road. So they've been hit by a huge surge in bad loans, which is something that we've been seeing from the IMF, because now it's just sort of meet the new boss, same as the old boss type of situation. But also their investments, which cynics will say these are all just ways to buy soft power, those don't seem to be paying off. But on the plus side, there's another thing, maybe you'll touch on those, Rob. The last thing we want to talk about is that China has agreed to sort of break through our compromise on this debt impasse. So there is kind of some positive light at the end of the tunnel, despite all of these negative news stories I just mentioned. Yeah, true. We talk a lot about decoupling and all these different things that are happening between China and the West. But in fact, not only is China a huge supplier of goods, a huge trading partner, but it's also now one of the people has to be at the table if you're going to talk about debt relief, because they're now one of the biggest lenders to a lot of these developing countries. And they're one of the ones that has to agree to a package before the IMF can agree to a package. Theoretically, they don't have the same characteristics as an IMF loan. And theoretically, they also have very tough repayment requirements, and they haven't been in the business before of restructuring them. Mm. So now one could say, well, they may be coming of age, their portfolio is getting hit by all these economic headwinds. Thanks, folks. Lateral pressures. <laughs> Lateral pressures coming from like wind. And they have to deal with now bad loans. They have to deal with white elephant projects. And they have to deal with the fact that just because they bought somebody a bullet train doesn't mean that they've suddenly got huge influence over what they do. So it's kind of a coming of age for China as a world power, a financial power and power in other ways. And it's also a recognition on the part of these institutions that China's got to be around the table. Mm. Where China is seeing more wind in its sails, not the lateral kind, the kind that actually is good for the boat. There she blows. Thank you, Ahab. It's getting more traction in its trade investment deals with countries like Brazil. And these seem to come with no strings attached and might be making, might be, I say, making those in places like the EU and the US specifically stand up and take notice. It does raise the question of whether it counts as a trade deal if there's no market access component. And as I say this, I'm turning slowly towards the US. We're talking about you, US. (laughs) But Rob, what do we mean when we talk about market access and why is this more interesting for a country like Brazil to partner with China? And this is despite all the things that Lulu was saying in their recent sort of power they had about balancing world geopolitics, I think in my opinion, this comes down to, yeah, market access. So what do we mean when we talk about that? Well, probably not only market access, but when we say what market access right now, the U.S. is negotiating agreements which do not reduce tariffs. So do not create additional markets in the U.S. They're trying to focus on non-tariff issues, which we know we were a little skeptical about, but they're arguing that things like cooperation on standards, cooperation on technology, these kinds of things are more important now than market access. I think most of the countries who are negotiating with the U.S. are saying, fine, all that's fine, but they also want market access. In fact, U.S. business wants it. And we know the political reasons. So the you know, Biden administration probably doesn't want to take a treaty to Congress and blah, and blah, and blah. Boring. So China's actually going and talking to people about real kind of trade agreements where mm. you've got additional market access. And I think they're also maybe speechifying a little less to countries like Brazil or African countries. We talked about the kind of big power mm. scramble in Africa. More transactions. So getting fewer kind of lectures. They're getting perhaps lower kinds of requirements, easier standards to get in the market. And I think when the US and EU come with these agreements, they probably have a little bit too little to offer. And that was even the, the subject of an FT article. When the West comes with something like the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, you just read it and you're like, where's the there there? It's the diplomatic version of hugs and kisses. But I also think that the Brazils of the world, but also France is saying, okay, well, we want to try to balance this out. We want to have friends all over the place. 
and decoupling probably doesn't make sense. So I think they are looking for that balance. I think we're also guilty of this too. We oftentimes get caught up in talking about the EU as if it's sort of this monolithic block that speaks with one voice, but it's actually made up of 27 countries, which all have relatively differing or somewhat differing standards of what they want to get out of their international foreign policy or economic policy, or at least it's not completely different, but they do diverge in some areas. And so France is talking one way, Germany has its own issues that it's dealing with, Spain, et cetera, and so on and so forth. So for me, it did highlight that. And I'm going to make a better effort to not talk about the EU as just one monolith. Yeah. And I'm going to try not to pronounce it EU. EU? EU. That's what you meant. Okay. I see what you did. That's a dad joke. See what what I did there? That's a dad joke if I ever heard it. All right. So we've already done two bits to talk about China. So I guess that means that we're going to do a third one to complete the trifecta. Yep. Many people are saying that companies like Apple are slowly looking for the exit doors when it comes to building out their supply chains in China. There does seem to be smoke there, not necessarily a fire yet, but other companies seem to be doing the opposite. So Tesla has recently doubled down on China as using it as one of their manufacturing hubs. They've recently agreed to build a battery factory in Shanghai as Apple, as I said, is shifting more iPhone production outside of China. And again, this is probably some PTSD and what they dealt with with COVID and things like this. I think... Some people can say, well, this is just a normal rebalancing. So China was so concentrated as a supplier that it just makes sense. Mm. You could say it that way. Size, labor costs, et cetera. Even for China, you can say they were too concentrated in certain, as an exporter to certain markets. So even they may be and have been looking for more of an impetus from the domestic market, as well as to look at the Asian partners, the RCEP and, and other things. So you could say it's that, but it's hard to believe it's not also, especially in the tech industry, the push by the US, for instance, to to try to make certain advanced technologies not available. So if you've got a China supply chain, you won't be able to use those technologies. And if you're in China, you can't put those parts in there. So it's hard to believe that's not an element, even if you say, well, the rebalancing probably does make sense because we were extraordinarily concentrated in that market. It may make sense also from a cost standpoint. So China, you know, folks are making more money. China's getting more expensive to operate in. So there may be good business reasons, but it's hard to believe geopolitics don't also play a part. I think what Tesla is saying is, they want to be in that market. So you probably can't manufacture your car someplace else and maybe export it into China. You know, Musk sees the growth is going to be there. And also if there's a gigantic explosion, it's basically fine. It never happened. I mean, it's on YouTube, but other than that. Nothing is he here. We'll keep an eye on that one. So yeah, so we will keep an eye on this and plenty other things, but especially China, because it seems to be all we're talking about lately, but also sprinkling in the EU and the US. I think we need to make sure we get that supply chain story in every episode. I think countries are diversifying their supply chains. We should start diversifying the news items. Let's build more resilience into the stories we pick to talk about. Kent Wilska is the director of the Sustainable Trade Unit at the Department of International Trade and Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Finland. My old job. He has previously worked as commercial counselor at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, previously from 20, 2005 to 2021. Not my old job. His area of expertise include trade and sustainable development, responsible business conduct, aid for trade, as well as Latin American economic and social development. He'll talk about that during the interview. Kent has a doctorate degree in economics and business administration. So Kent, thanks for joining us on the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on. Why don't we start off by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you end up working in the trade space? Well, it's a quite long story, but I tried to cut it short. You know, late 80s, Cold War, and I did my obligatory military service. And it was so freezing cold that winter that I said, I'm going to go to Spain for a few years. End up there, learned the language, came back. 
And then I was going to study law, but that felt kind of boring. And I switched to a school of economics and business administration. And that's how I started studying. When I graduated, there was a recession, not much jobs around. And I ended up starting to do my PhD. And then at some point, you know, started to do research on Latin America because of the Spanish that I had learned. And uh, then I ended up a few years in the Caribbean, in the NGOs. And did some trade and development stuff there. And, and then 2005, I saw a job announcement at the Ministry for a Trade and Development Expert. And I got lucky and I got the job a permanent position in 2005. And since then, I have been around here in trade and development issues. And so you're the head of the Sustainable Trade Unit at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of, of Finland. So first of all, what is the rationale behind having such a so-named unit in the, in the MFA, and how have things changed in the past decades? Because I understand it didn't start out as the sustainable trade unit, per se. Yeah, no, no, we didn't have that. And I'm trying to recall the name of the unit where I first started. It was something like OECD investment and other special trade issues. And all that was uh, so-called sustainable trade was in the category of other special trade issues. I think this one is but, more catchy. Yeah, now these 18 years or so, I mean, a lot more of these issues are in the front of our agenda. Climate change, loss of biodiversity, still persistent problems in value chains in terms of labor rights or human rights. So now sustainable trade is everywhere. You take the Inflation Reduction Act or critical raw materials or green transition. It's, it's everywhere. Nearly 20 years ago, it was a niche, something marginal, something special to do with developing countries, maybe a little bit of environment. Now it seems to be everywhere. So what is its role in, if I can say, Finland's foreign policy? What does it sort of day in the life of the sustainable trade unit look like? We are at the Department for International Trade. So we do trade policy and we deal with what, well, European Union does. So we are following the multilateral negotiation, bilateral free trade agreements, and all these so-called autonomous instruments that are related with sustainable development. And then we also do have some development cooperation funds, and we do work also in that field, you know, trade-related capacity building for developing countries and so on. So that's the kind of broad agenda as part of the trade policy as it's kind of defined by the European Union. So we see a lot about the UN climate reports. There's a big urgency on climate. And we see the SDGs took a hit during COVID so that we lost a little bit of ground there. Now there's kind of, we hope, a renewed momentum despite a few geopolitical hiccups there. But trade still remains very controversial. In some cases, people think trade is bad in a way. You know, when you think about environmental impact, trade is bad. We may not subscribe to that, but how do you make the argument? What can sustainable trade do to kind of further these big goals in the area of climate and sustainability? Yeah, my first reaction would be to say that, okay, trade is good. And if we kind of look back that where was the poverty reduction gains achieved before? Well, let's say part of it was attributed clearly to trade and investment. You know, East Asia, how they were able to have some important increase in, in poverty reduction. I think that trade and trade and investment, they're opening up to trade had a lot to do. But then there's the other side that, okay, it's not just the kind of quantity of trade that anything, but you will have to also look at the conditions. What good does it do for us? Okay, you, you are increasing a lot of your exports, but if you are destroying your environment at the same time, you throw the garbage and, you know, the residues out of the factory or the conditions that people are working there. And of course, everything is relative. You can say, okay, this is better than living in a land hole in the countryside that you can be in a sweatshop doing 14 hours a day. 
I think you just described Rob's village in France, where he is now <laughs> resides. There's not a lot of trade. Land hole, somewhere in the middle of nowhere. That's a good description. So, because we're often talking about making the case for trade in a way. I think you're already starting to come up with some of those elements, but when you're in these negotiations, when you're in discussions in the European Union, or even when you're talking to other Finns, what's that case that you're making? I think the key case is that that's where you create jobs. You create jobs and without jobs, you don't have pay under the poverty reduction and so on. But then you have to also look at the quality. Nowadays, it's difficult to just go with the quantity-based arguments. You also have to look at all these other dimensions. And if you cut down all the trees for having cows there and having meat or soya or so on, and you don't care about deforestation, it's not so called sustainable. So then I guess in trade policy, your colleagues are probably negotiating kind of hardcore trade agreements. And they're looking to you for advice on mainstreaming sustainability. How do you get that into trade policy? Because in many cases in Geneva, we know negotiators don't want to touch it. They just want to talk about tariffs. They just want to talk about traditional issues. So how do you get sustainability into that conversation? Yeah, well, multilaterally, as you said, that's the situation. And in terms of the sustainability issues, there's not that much movement there, except maybe the environmental side. I was saying in, let's say, the EU's trade agreements, all the different negotiations, I think the challenge is how do you convince the partner? Because it's a negotiation between two parties. And if they are not at the same level of thinking, how are you convinced that this is what we are now saying, that this is the right moment for you to do this in the exact same manner that we are now describing? I guess these are issues that you're constantly weighing as the EU has been seen as this sort of sustainability slash regulation machine lately. I imagine there's this consideration that, well, the exported countries, the importer here, have a lot to do to catch up in some cases. Now, is this something that you're always considering when you're deciding on what to negotiate for? No, I think now if you think of all these negotiations we have uh, ongoing, for example, this has these so-called trade and sustainable development chapters have become like kind of politically important. And let's say in India, Mercosur, all what we do with so-called emerging markets or developing countries, I think that's a kind of a tricky issue, how to do this and we have believed much on the kind of cooperation on this sense. You know, the U.S. agreements, you have what they call sanctions or, or you can withdraw trade benefits if the other party doesn't follow through all the commitments. And um, it's not that easy to resolve those systemic pro- challenges that some countries may have. Do you find that these conversations are getting easier? So like, whereas 20 years ago, if you had just walked into the negotiating room and said, hey, sustainability is on the agenda, you probably got some slightly weird looks. I mean, maybe I'm answering my own question. Has that gotten sort of easier to do? I don't know. I, in a way, easier yet because everybody's more conscious that there are these challenges. But at the same time, we are all the time broadening the agenda. There's climate change now, loss of biodiversity is coming on. How many things are you going to resolve with trade? And I think that's one of the challenges. What are the limits of trade? And are we trying to use trade agreements to resolve problems that could be resolved actually without mixing the trade agreements here. But there is money involved in the trade agreements. So I think some circles are trying to use trade agreements as a leverage for other policy goals. Yeah. And I think the agenda is getting very crowded. And I'm wondering, switch gears a little bit. I know you work also a lot with the Finnish private sector and consulting with them and understanding what they want to get out of these things. What do you hear from them? Do you think they have a real commitment to sustainability or they just want to do the minimum? 
they want to do compliance? Or what do you think finished business expects from in away from all these negotiations and all of this? Well, I think in general terms, Finnish businesses are very committed to these issues. The challenge with Finns or any other companies, I think, comes from the very long supply chains or value chains or global production networks where it's relatively easy for you to control your own production or subsidiaries that you control over 50%. But then once you have the long value chains and uh, commercial contracts, and not you might be a minority shareholder, in some, how are you going to control what happens in those value chains? And I think that's the tricky one for any company. And those value chains are all the constantly changing, new clients, new suppliers, and so on. So I think that's a challenge for everyone. One important consideration for our private sector, I think it's to be part of this green transition technological solutions. I think we have a lot of spearheading companies there that could provide these solutions. And if we could multilaterally try to remove obstacles that would be uh, good for our companies, it would be good for the climate and, and environment. I'm making a joke, but I mean this very sincerely. I love speaking to Finns about almost any topic because they get to the point. This is probably the most succinct interview we've had yeah, in, exactly. in a while. We asked you one question. We're almost running out of questions at this point. So I think it's time to go to the important part of the interview. I say we're almost running out. This is where we're going to ask you some questions about more important topics related to your uh, your life and the philosophy. So the first one is, you said you lived outside Finland. You went to Latin America. What did you learn about Finland when you were an expat that you didn't know before you left? Or what have you learned just visiting Geneva so yeah, often? Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, one of the things that I did not appreciate before is that, you know, you can turn on in Finland the tap for hot water and it keeps coming as long as you want. (laughs) (laughs) So that's such a luxury when you have been taking these cold showers or the water goes on and off and suddenly it's freezing and then it's hot. And I think the plumbing. The water systems, I really appreciating those things. I hated when I did my military service and I said, I'm never going to come back. I'm going to move somewhere warm. But, you know, after a few years, you want to come back. And then actually, it's not that bad place and things actually work here. Finland, it's warm when you want it. The water on that end. The water is warm when you want it, exactly. (laughs) Now, of course, we have to do it somehow environmentally friendly way to warm up the water. But there are solar panels and, and stuff. One listener wrote us in, and I won't say who. He wants to know if it's true that Denmark is really just a suburb of East and West Scandinavia, Sweden and Finland. Hmm. I once made a joke about Argentina on TV, and an old ambassador got kind of annoyed with that one. So I'm going to refrain from making any comments on foreign nations. Best answer, best answer. That is a top quality answer. Yeah. So this next one should be an easy one. On a scale of zero to Jeffrey Sachs, how sustainable should international trade be? Jeffrey Sachs being the most sustainable possible. I think I go for the middle ground. That's how I have survived for these nearly 20 years at the ministry. You know, this trade and development issues, there is always this tension on development people and the trade people. So I, I think that's the safest is going the middle ground here. There are different sides here in this story, in these topics. I think the Jeffrey Sachs scale is how bad a person am I? Every conference he starts, I just start feeling terrible about myself. (laughs) The last one, we're uh, quite scientific on the podcast. We are collecting information and you're no different. So we've got to, of course, ask you the same question, which is you've been to Geneva many times. Did you actually live here at some point? 
No, no, I've never lived there yet. Could be an uh, interesting option, but it depends on... The hot water works just fine. The hot water's good. So, and you've probably, of course, been here enough to know that our native food here is kebab. So, which is your favorite kebab in Geneva? And I'll give you a hint. Alamir. I must confess, I have never eaten kebab in, in Geneva. What do you eat when you're in Geneva? That's, uh, I'm not sure what else there is. <laughs> well, yeah, I think it's just pizza. <laughs> the other national dish. That's, that's standard, easy, not too expensive choice. That's actually two guests in a row. It's the trade solution. This question is slowly dying a natural death. Yeah, we're going to need to ask about pizza next. Yeah, pizza kebab. It's a good one. Excellent thing. No pineapple. <laughs> so, Kent, thanks for joining us. It's been fantastic to have you on. Really refreshing. Where can people find what you're doing and the work the Sustainable Trade Union in Finland is doing? Well, I must say that our website is not that great, but try to be on Twitter and things like that, my colleagues in LinkedIn and, and so on. We are trying to learn this uh, social media stuff just okay. by sending us an email or calling us. Or carrier pigeon. Try to. Yeah, yeah that's one as well. <laughs> but they refuse the right to work in winter. <laughs> yeah, this is the, they're better on Southern Europe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> great. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Ken. It's been, it's been great having you on. Thanks a lot. It was nice talking to you guys. So that brings us to the next segment. This is where our correspondent, Michelle, talks to us about the vibe shift. Michelle, is globalization finally dead? I don't know about globalization, but I think Elon Musk is about to die. Uh-oh. No, okay. no. <laughs> Please stop. <laughs> no, no. Okay, so he's gone completely crazy and he is creating an everything app. Are you guys familiar with everything apps? Yeah. WeChat? WeChat, basically. I am not that familiar with it because I was kicked out of WeChat after like a month of using it. What'd you do wrong? I don't know what I did wrong. I don't think applications should kick you out and not tell you why. Exactly. They should tell you why. No, I just violated their terms of conduct or whatever. But I don't know what I did. Oh, I think there's a story here. (laughs) No. It was. As I take out my popcorn. No, the problem is that if you try to get back onto WeChat, nobody's going to allow you back in because somebody has to vouch for you in order to get you back on WeChat. And it has to be somebody that's been on the platform for a year. Okay. And then if you do something wrong again, they get kicked out too. This is like Black Mirror. So you got nobody that can vouch for you. So nobody wants to vouch for you, especially when you say, I don't know what I did wrong, so I don't know if I'll do it again. There's literally a billion Chinese people. You don't know anybody else on WeChat? Nobody that wants to help me. There's a billion of them. I think you know what you did. I don't know. I think you know what she actually. I don't know what I did. There's something here she's not telling us. Mm. I do not recall the Jeff Sessions excuse. Language. Anyway, my point is if Elon Musk is trying to do this and with his propensity to ban people off, I think I'm also not going to see. You're not going to be on there. I'm not going to see this thing. It's called X, by the way. You want to guess what it's financed with? Teslas? No, come on. Twitter? Crypto. Yeah, you read it on the script. I didn't read the script. That's why I'm a good person to talk to. Otherwise, yeah, it's it a Wednesday. <laughs> anyway, yeah, it's financed by crypto, obviously. The thing is called XAI. The crypto thing is called XAI, so it's probably crypto and AI to just get as many buzzwords as possible. And then, yeah, the app That's is called That's also the X. name of his daughter. Oh, didn't you change her name? Or super, somebody super changed her name? Which one? Doesn't he have like 18? He has more children than SpaceX has rockets. Yeah. So why should we care that Elon is starting a WeChat thing? Because hasn't he started 1,800 other companies? Which It's probably not going to work. I care because I feel like I'm going to be excluded. Okay, so it's a FOMO. That's when globalization really ends. <laughs> when Michelle's not, not on the app. When Michelle is not nonchalant about something. Mm. You really don't know what you did. 
I don't know what I did. <laughs> if okay. anybody who's listening knows what Michelle did to get dumped off of WeChat, please write in trade.splaining at gmail.com. That's trade.splaining at gmail.com. Thanks a lot, Michelle. So we'll be monitoring the end of globalization. But not WeChat. But not on WeChat. So that brings us to our next and perhaps penultimate segment. This is This Week in Local News. You wouldn't believe this was true unless you lived in Geneva or pretty much anywhere else. Mostly anywhere. So Artie, you were talking about a very important development in Finland. Yeah. So we have Kent on for this episode, and I think it's only fitting to talk about this breaking news development. That Finnair is replacing two of its shortest routes, Mm -hmm. wait for it, with buses. How do they fly? They drive. Oh, they drive on the ground buses. But they're still called Finnair, ah, okay. which is the most Nordic thing I've ever heard. And you can get on their site and get a ticket. You can get a bus ticket to ride, like the Beatles song. Yeah. In a bid to reduce its carbon footprint, the airline, as I said, is swapping aircraft for buses on services to Tampere and Turku. It's actually, they're actually doing it. They just take buses. I guess these are short flights. Electric buses. They're selling off the planes. I don't know. I think the planes are parked. They're just not driving them if it's too close. Like me driving my car to the Migro to go for groceries. It's literally across the street, but I still do it. Really? Because I don't feel like carrying it. You're the reason the world is going to poop. Yeah, it's me. It's not everything that Gen X and the baby boomers did. You know what? The Geneva airport we all love so much that you can ride a bicycle to. They're going to start reducing their flights. Somebody's proposed that half the flights are put out of existence and we can take trains. You literally have fossil fuel tattooed on your back and you're talking to me about, I did this. No, you did this because you did nothing. Punchy. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I should mention that actual flying time on the routes is around 25 minutes, so it kind of makes sense. I would love to be on a bus. You can take your hot ham and cheese on there and a styrofoam. It's like the 80s are calling. Yeah, it's it's exactly like, what it is. And, and a hot gonna, coffee that you spill call, all over yourself and, when, the, when the fat guy next to you puts his arm out. The other thing we should mention since the UK, mm-hmm. and I'm just a hobarding this segment now. Yeah. Since the UK recently signed a trade deal with Oklahoma. Yeah. Where the wind blows. This is going to replace that whole EU thing. Sweeping through the plains. I guess news is really local. So we'll probably talk about some news coming out of Knoxville. Okay. Which is not in Oklahoma, but just go with me. Okay. Yeah, I am. I'm going with you. So it is being alleged that the zoo in Knoxville showcased a lion exhibit, quotes on lion, by covering a pit bull, and not the singer from Miami, in a lion's main wig and hoping nobody noticed. I saw the meme. I mean, I would go to look at that. They gave him like a Tina Turner wig, this poor pit bull. Mm-hmm. And then they made him sing his famous songs from 2008. <laughs> 2008 is really on the mind today. Mr. Worldwide is now in Oklahoma <laughs> or Knox. But in a sadder note, I did want to bring in the fact that many of us in Geneva are very concerned about this. They've taken out all of the benches at the Jardin Anglais. You can no longer sit to admire the flower clock. I don't even know where that is. They pulled them out overnight. It's perhaps one of these things we should vote it on. Mm. We didn't vote on it. Well, I can vote. You can't. No, on a local issue, communal issue like this. Oh, I can that's vote. right. That's the only issues you care about. I can vote. I can vote on some stuff like what's the color of the trash can. I cannot vote <laughs> on who my local leader is. I would have voted on this. It's a beautiful trash can. I would have read the brochure and I would have voted against it. I know you're feeling threatened right now, but let me just tell you, it's a beautiful trash can you selected. Hey, I mean, durable, bounces back, shows a lot of resilience. Speaking of trash cans, you sound like Oscar the Grouch right now. You sound like Punchy the Grouch. Well, folks, that about wraps up episode 47, brought to you by the good folks at the IMF, by China, China and China. And bad developing country loans. And of course, Elon Musk. 
And I'd like to thank our guests, Kent Wilska, for joining us to talk about hot water and, of course, sustainable trade. Yeah, but mostly the hot water. And the buses, the Finnair buses. Yeah. We also want to thank our executive producer, Michelle Ogin and Valentina Saponara for highlighting the vibe shift as well as in helping produce this and every TS episode. Please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't done so already and make sure you catch our next episode coming out very, very soon. You can find us anywhere you get your podcast, Apple, Spotify, Google. You can find us anywhere, everywhere, all at once. And you'll know that they listen to it if they complain about it because it's the only time I mentioned them. Exactly, shows. yeah. Anywhere you get your podcast. So don't forget to leave us a review. We read all of them, so please be gentle. You can follow us on Twitter at Tradesplaining or on Instagram at trade.splaining. Or email us your questions, comments the old-fashioned way at trade.splaining at gmail.com. Once again, that's trade.splaining at gmail.com. We no longer take TikToks because that's now been outlawed. The Tradesplaining legal staff said there were too many risks associated with TikTok. And they thought Michelle might be kicked off at some. You're banned along with that joke. But remember, folks, just listen, listen responsibly. responsibly.